Matthew chapter 18. A reading tonight, 21 to the end of the chapter. Let us pray. Father, upon this occasion of reading your word in the assembly of your people, which we know you approve for you have commanded it, and upon the occasion of preaching the word in season and out, which we know you approve because you have commanded it, we have every confidence then to ask for your help for the things you have commanded. And we indeed join our, our Father in the faith Command what you will, but grant what you command. Lord, we are dependent upon grace to benefit. We pray that our hearing would indeed be helped, that your Holy Spirit would give us the grace to believe, and believing to understand, and understanding to reform and conform our lives to that which you have spoken and to the very image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we thank you that it is our great privilege and our adoption to be regarded before you as sons and daughters of the Most High and to receive all the privileges of that sonship. So Lord, let us indeed hear and let us indeed become that which is pleasing in your sight through our union with Jesus. In his name we ask, amen. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word.
<clears throat> the way forward into greater peace and joy and blessing and depth and growth with other Christians was never going to be those other Christians being so mature and so well-behaved that you would never need to forgive one of them. That was never the plan. A bare minimum need to forgive and be forgiven was never going to be God's plan for his pilgrim church to become a people of strength in Jesus Christ. Everyone having awesome sanctification levels off the chart was never going to be the way a church would take root and prosper and spread out and bear the fruit of Christ's risen life in her midst. Forgiveness was always the plan. Forgiveness would give all those things. Forgiveness is still the plan. Forgiveness will remain the plan. Forgiveness is the way the church thrives and deepens her loves and grows her graces in the likeness of her Savior and begins even to see more and more gospel power in her midst. There's one pastor, now long dead, who made the same point this way. Will not my brother's sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ? Oh, with what wonderful eyes would we have if we could see our brother's sin that way? This pastor goes on with another wise insight. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Jesus was never going to allow his church to prosper in her life by some means other than she first prospered in her birth, which is the forgiveness of sins. You think that was in the rear mirror mirror now? Mm -mm. Beloved, that is the road. That is the way. Forgiveness. Jesus was never going to let us prosper in Christian fellowship by some method that celebrated our saying the right thing all the time, our doing the right thing all the time, instead of his forgiveness of sins. Even in heaven, even in the kingdom of glory, it is the lamb as if he were slain who is center to the attention of the children of God, so that we never forget that forgiveness is the foundation stone in Jesus Christ. Listen to how forgiveness was always the plan, laid out in Colossians 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. 
Now we find before us tonight a parable about this forgiveness. About the forgiveness we just heard in Colossians. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. We find this parable here so that we do not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Our Lord Jesus does not want us to get so involved in the details of handling sin, which we have just come through in the previous paragraphs, that we fail to look at the main solution for sin. Forgiveness. Everything we are doing with one another is to bring forth an opportunity to discharge the forgiveness that we have received ourselves. So we come to verse 21. Peter comes to our Lord Jesus to learn the limits of forgiveness. We have just recently heard Jesus teach what we are to do when our brother sins against us. That's in verse 15. We are not to quietly withdraw in shock or disappointment or resentment. We learn that we are to go to our brother and tell him his fault for the purpose of regaining and restoring our brother. But now, in verse 21, Peter wants to know how long this sort of thing possibly has to go on. Peter has been around the block a few times. He knows there are brothers and sisters who will sin against him. And then a few days later, or a few weeks later, or a few months later, they will do it all over again. Peter wants to be prepared for those situations so he can keep good records. He wants to keep count of how many times he has forgiven so he always knows how many times he has left to forgive. Peter is pretty sure there has got to be a limit. He probably thought himself, in fact, very generous for offering up to seven times in his original question because many rabbis only suggested three. And then you cut off this serial sinner. So Peter's doubled it and added one, and he knows how weighty is the number seven. But our Lord Jesus immediately disappoints Peter. I do not say to you seven times, where'd you come up with that number, Peter? I didn't say that. But 77 times, verse 22. Jesus not only tosses away Peter's proposal, but Jesus then sets down the correct rule. 77 times. Even though Jesus replies with a much larger number than Peter offered, our Lord is not really playing a counting game. Jesus is drawing Peter's attention back to an expression of vengeance in Genesis 4, verse 24. In the Greek Old Testament, the Greek words are the same from verse 22 tonight and Genesis 4, 24. In that verse, Lamech, a descendant of Cain, proudly says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech is declaring his maximal commitment to vengeance. Jesus, by drawing on that same question, or same expression, is calling Peter and all of us to a maximal commitment of forgiveness. 
to be the anti-Lamech. Not meager, measurable, or easily counted efforts of forgiveness, but rather unlimited, uncountable efforts of forgiveness is the rule. That's the rule. Now, beginning at verse 23, our Lord starts opening a parable to Peter and to the church. And this parable is all designed to show us how much forgiveness we owe to those who sin against us, even those who sin repeatedly against us. And it is very likely that the Lord has chosen an astronomical number to describe the debt that this one servant owes to the king, an astronomical number because in the common understanding of the Jews, when you counted the number of sins somebody had brought against you, you could count perhaps within one incident 17 different sins. And there, within a 10-minute moment of sinning against you, perhaps slandering you on the street, they would have exhausted all of their opportunities for forgiveness. 17 different things you said about me. So the Lord comes up with an astronomical number, 10,000 talents, which we'll explain in a moment. So in verse 23, the parable begins, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. What the Lord Jesus is now telling us is that this parable will reveal the way God rules in his kingdom of salvation. He's revealing to us that which we wouldn't have known unless it were revealed to us. That the way God rules and governs in the kingdom of salvation is now to be disclosed to you through this parable. Does God count out how many times you have come? How much he has to forgive? Does he concern himself with the amount and say you've asked for too much? Well, let's find out. When this king began to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, what is a talent? A talent is a measure of weight. A talent was money measured by the weight of particular metals. So the value of a talent could vary depending on whether the metal involved was silver or gold or copper. Now, a very common value was a talent of silver. And this was worth 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii was a talent of silver. Well, what is a denarii? A denarii was the wage of a farmhand that was earned in one day. So using that scale, it would take a farmhand 20 years to earn one talent of silver. 20 years. Now try to think how much 10,000 talents might be if these are 10,000 talents of silver. The answer is it's an astronomical debt that this servant owes. We would use the word zillions. 
And maybe some of you younger people know a word that I don't know that would describe it. It would take thousands of lifetimes to earn this money. But it's not income. It's debt. It's the debt the servant owes the king. And it is representative to us of the sin that the sinner has before God. Because this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. Is there anyone here who has sinned 10,000 talents worth of sin? Beloved, our sin is so great, it is God alone who must tell us its true greatness. Not its goodness, but its greatness. This is the debt we are in with God. Our sin is so great, but the purpose of the parable is to show that God's forgiveness is greater. You cannot sin more than God can forgive. Now notice, the king did not owe forgiveness to this servant. Even with the plea for mercy that comes from the servant, the king did not owe forgiveness of this debt to the servant. The king could have been completely just and glorious by executing on this servant the lifetimes in prison that are mentioned in the parable. For him, his wife, and his children. The king didn't owe this servant forgiveness of his debt. Even when the servant pleaded for mercy, nobody owes anyone mercy. That's why it's called mercy. But let us understand, it was the pleasure of the king. He was moved in his heart to pity, to forgive this needy servant. Let's go to verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. It's clear that the servant does not understand the great weight of his debt. He thinks that he will eventually be able to pay it off. And so he pleads out of ignorance. And this, of course, draws the pity of the king, not his wrath. What is the Lord showing us, his church, in the parable thus far? The Lord is showing us that we have an enormous debt of sin, but the Lord has an enormous heart of pity for that enormous debt. And that it is the Lord's greatest pleasure not to make a perfect accounting and a perfect balancing of the books. It is his greatest pleasure to forgive our great debt. This is a really hard thing for the children of God to wrap our heads around. That the Lord has more zeal to forgive our debts than to collect on them. This, of course, is the pity and mercy and compassion at the heart of the living God. It is to his glory 
to forgive, not to collect. Understand when we say it is to his glory to forgive, not to collect, we do not mean that the Lord winks and never gets justice for the sins of his people. No, he does fully satisfy justice. This is why he sends forth his prince, his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the full weight of his wrath on the cross. But he does not take justice from us. We cannot offer it. When I read this parable and hear the king say, throw them all in prison, the wife, the children, so payment can be made. We have a little brief commentary right there on the entirety of Adam's household. The first Adam who falls into sin, who brings his family with him into death, if he was ever to spend his time in debtor's prison to pay off the great debt of defaming and defacing the glory of God, all his posterity would have to go with him, and there would still never be enough lifetimes to recover from us the glory and honor that we owe unto God. It can only be done through Jesus Christ. Let's continue then with the parable. Back to verse 26. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. As the parable advances here, we are struck by the seemingly absurd behavior of a man who has just been forgiven 10,000 talents of debt. He is on his way home, and he finds a man on the road who owes him 100 denarii, 100 days' wages, a pittance, a fraction, a sliver compared to the 10,000 talents that he has just had forgiven by the great king who has all authority to condemn him and his wife and children forever. On his way home, he cannot forgive the 100 denarii. His mind, his heart, his will is all suddenly ruled by what men owe him. And this will keep him from from forgiving something very small compared to what he himself has been forgiven. What men owe him fills the entire frame of his vision of who he is in the world. You owe me respect. You owe me honor. You owe me obedience. You owe me to be on time. You owe me to speak well of me. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me. It always turns out that forgiveness is withheld because we want what men owe us. 
Because getting what men owe us is our true delight and fulfillment and satisfaction. Forgiving what men owe us is not our delight, is not our satisfaction, is not our fulfillment, but it is the king's. The king is more zealous to forgive than he is to collect. So this servant, who has just been forgiven 10,000 talents of silver, has forgotten the mercy of the king and can only remember what people owe him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here's where you can do some serious archaeology on the people that you are to be forgiving in the name and power of Jesus Christ. You know who they are. They are the people that you have kept good books on. You almost have earned a CPA certification. You've kept records in your conscience of the people who have not given to you what they owed you. And you may not be literally choking them on the street, but you do the next best thing. You live among them as if they are dead. You avoid them, you don't look at them, you don't talk to them, because you refuse to forgive them. And you refuse to forgive them because what's more valuable to you than anything is what they owe you and that they haven't given it to you. And you have lost access because of your sinful heart to the delight that comes from forgiving that which is owed to you. So this fellow servant, verse 29, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. It's very obvious, is it not, that our Lord Jesus is putting in the first servant, putting the first servant who's been forgiven 10,000 talents, he's putting him in the same position that the king was in before him. And he's putting the second servant in the same position that he was once in before the king, pleading, begging, and he's blind to it. And this is really what our Lord Jesus wants this church to see, how easily we become blind, that we suddenly are in a position to imitate God and forgive sinners, but we are become blind to the fact that we have stood before God and received forgiveness. And we are suddenly in the position where somebody is wanting to be received and welcomed and forgiven by us. We forget that we ourselves were once needing to be received and welcomed and forgiven by God. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The king is back to a full 
accounting of this servant's debt. Because he has learned by the servant's behavior, his wicked, unforgiving spirit, the king has learned that this servant has no love for the king. That this servant has no delight in the ways of the king. That this servant does not take any accounting and reverence for the kingdom of the king and the way it is ruled and governed. This servant does not worship the king, though the king has given him life and given his wife life and given his children life by forgiving their debt. So this is a wicked servant, you see, because he out on the street functions and lives and acts in direct opposition to the king who forgives. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, and he shall not pay it. It's an expression measured with the 10,000 talents of a payment that cannot be made. Too many lifetimes would be required. Our Lord Jesus comes to the end of the parable in verse 35, and in, and in one sentence, he summarizes everything the church is to learn from it. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Plainly stated, and I don't know if it needs to be said this way, but it is certainly the Lord's point. You will be cast into hell if you refuse to forgive other Christians for their sins against you. You will be cast into hell because your father is the devil. If you despise forgiveness, if you do not delight in mercy, you do not know the God who forgives sinners. And you will be cast into hell. And all of the theological gymnastics that somebody might want to go through to say, well, maybe I will be able to avoid hell if I'm just sort of a bad forgiver. That is not the point Jesus is making tonight. Let's not make it. The Lord Jesus is making it very clear to his church that we are false brethren. We are imposters. We are saboteurs. If we do not delight in forgiveness, you can delight in forgiveness, beloved, and still have it come hard, still require lots of prayer, still require counsel to get it done, still require your best Christian friends to shove you through the door to go do it. You can need all sorts of help because you delight in forgiveness and you know that it lies at the cornerstone of the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. But if you don't delight in forgiveness to the point where you refuse to give it, you will be cast into hell because you are a rival to the king who delights in forgiveness. I told you the story 
when I preached on forgiveness as we went through the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord Jesus tells us to pray, to put on our lips in reverent petitions, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I told you the story of Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse having to solve a very thick conflict between women and his church. And he heard from one of his members say, oh, I have forgiven her. I just don't want to ever see her in my house again. I don't want to ever have to deal with her again. Forgiveness for her was a private mental act, not a public act where the body of Christ could kiss again and commune again and embrace again. Beloved, let us remember that the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, was not in his head. Not in his head only. It was in his body. It was in his blood. It was costly. It was public. It was there for all to see that he whom we put to death after being raised from the dead, came back and said, peace. And he came to us and ate with us and called us brothers and sisters. May our forgiveness be of such, for this is our king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word tonight on forgiveness. We do indeed, Lord, confess before you that we feel the strong temptation to want what others owe us more than we want to forgive them and to be bound to them by the word and deed of the forgiving Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would clear our eyes so that we would see rightly what's in our heart We pray, Lord God, that you would indeed show us again the great, enormous debt that we have been forgiven by the gracious King, Jesus Christ, who had every right to demand a full accounting of what we owed to him, but forgave us. Oh Lord, we pray that we would have this so fill our heart like treasure that we would be wanting to dispense it upon others, knowing that it could never run out. Gracious Lord, help us see. Help us see who we are before the great king and help us see who other men and women are before us. Lord, we pray that you would increase in our congregation the work of forgiveness, the spirit of forgiveness, the readiness of forgiveness. We pray that we would recognize that our, our great power in Jesus Christ is this power to forgive and to not keep a record of wrongs and then to forgive again and again and again and again as we are forgiven. Help us, Lord, with this. 
And may the kingdom of our high King, Jesus Christ, be so evident among us in it that many look this way and are drawn to our great King and his riches of grace and mercy because they see it all over us and between us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.